Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning and welcome. Thank you for tuning in to today's event hosted by Foundation for Defense of Democracies. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President here at FDD. It's Wednesday, December 13th, and we're thrilled to be hosting a conversation on options and considerations for the future of Gaza after Israel's war to destroy Hamas. We're pleased to have a first-rate lineup to discuss today's topic. First, we have my colleague Eyal Hulata, FDD's inaugural Senior International Fellow. He previously served for two decades in Israeli national security roles and most recently as national security advisor and head of Israel's National Security Council under Prime Ministers Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid. We also have my good friend Gaithal Omari, a senior fellow at the Washington Institute. He previously served as advisor to the negotiating team and held various other positions within the Palestinian Authority. Today's conversation will be moderated by Nahal Tusi, a first-rate reporter who serves as foreign affairs senior correspondent for Politico. She recently authored an article for Politico on how the Biden administration is planning for a post-war Gaza. I encourage all of our viewers to check that out. Before I hand the floor over, just a few words about FTD. For more than 20 years, FTD has operated as a fiercely independent, nonpartisan research institute exclusively focused on national security and foreign policy. As a point of pride and principle, we do not accept foreign government funding. Since Hamas's attacks on Israel on October 7th, FTD experts have produced more than 1,500 broadcast print and radio appearances and original research publications. To stay up to date on our real-time analysis, I encourage you to regularly check our website, FTD.org, and follow us on X at FTD. With that, Nahal, the floor is yours. Hi, everyone. I'm so glad you can join us, and I'd like to thank FDD in particular for hosting this conversation. Um, I'm going to start off this, this talk with, with an appeal to my two guests. Um, ever since this war began, I have been battling feelings of anger and disappointment. So I need you each uh, to tell me something that gives me some hope for the future when it comes to this seemingly intractable conflict. Eyal, do you want to start first? Uh, well, you know, from an uh, Israeli perspective, uh, uh, this situation is, uh, uh, is really one of, of, uh, of, of the worst we've, we've known since uh, the creation of Israel. I understand the need for optimism, and I, and I promise to get there, but I think that uh, having this conversation without recognizing how devastating October 7 was uh, and how traumatic it is for, for the Jewish people, uh, uh, to have this uh, worst day of, uh, of civilian casualties uh, uh, from the first existence of uh, conception of Israel as a country. Uh, Israel did not plan this. Israel did not intend to be in this situation. Israel did not intend to start a war with Gaza, right? On the contrary, if we were planning to have a war with Gaza, it would not look like this. Uh, October 7 wouldn't have happened and wouldn't have been surprised. So the fact that we find ourselves in such a situation needing to respond overwhelmingly uh, to prevent this from happening again uh, um, uh, creates uh, uh, circumstances that are, of course, devastating uh, uh, all across. And I share those uh, uh, those feelings, uh, Nahal, and I'm sure that, that Gates, from his perspective, will uh, uh, will say that the same. Uh, you know, uh, I think uh, what I should say uh, to this is that uh, we're all family. We're all cousins. 
uh, we're all born in the same region and uh, uh, this is the place we call home. I think each of us with his own stories, even though that we're now all three of us are, are in the United States and in, in DC for, for this point in time. Uh, uh, and at least for me, uh, uh, this is very important. On, on, when this uh, event happened, I was in the UAE. I was not in Israel and I was not in the United States. And the evening before on Friday, October 6th, I attended this wonderful dinner commemorating three years to the Abraham Accords. And, uh, uh, you know, with, with prominent people, friends from the UAE, from the United States, uh, and from Israel were all there. And we spoke about how wonderful the Middle East could be if we will continue this process, including the potential uh, 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 positive outcomes and, and uh, uh, that could happen to the Palestinian conflict coming from a good spirit of, uh, uh, of from the Gulf and for those countries. I think that all of those are still valid. I think that all of those are still the same. I think that most of, of, of the friends in the region understand that extremism is fundamentally uh, dangerous to the national security interests of all of those countries. And as long as we understand that, and as long as we remember that our shared values being uh, uh, realistic and pragmatic and, and preferring life over extremism, I think that as long as we have this in our heart, regardless of the countries we come from, there is a place for hope and there is a place for an, a better future. We'll just need to work towards that end and remember that the bad guys must lose in order for us uh, uh, to be there living together in peace. Well, we're definitely going to talk a lot about that. Dave, any words of optimism to get me off of my my couch of despair? Um, <clears throat> the short answer is no. Um, no, look, I mean, I, I, I do share what Eyal uh, said. I mean, what we're going through is <clears throat> uh, one of the darkest moments Certainly, October 7th was a devastating terror attack, and it can only be described as a terror attack. Uh, what we're seeing today in Gaza, and irrespective of issues of uh, you know technicalities, is a human tragedy. It's very hard to uh, think optimistically when you see that. Yet, I would say from a policy point of view, I would say there are two um, things that actually strike me as potentially positive. Um, one is the understanding that uh, the Palestinian-Israeli issue just cannot be put aside. And I think there was a lot of uh, uh, thinking that, you know, we can ignore it, we can uh, use the regional as a replacement for the Palestinian-Israeli. I think this was sadly a tragic reminder that this is not possible. And at the same time, I actually fully agree with uh, Eyal on the point that despite all of what's happening, I think when I talk to people in the region, to officials, the sense I get is that they want to get over this uh, period. They want to deal with the day after, and we will talk about this, uh, I'm sure, in greater detail. But they're still committed to a trajectory that uh, builds on the Abraham Accords, builds on regional integration. So I think in many ways, there's an understanding after this that uh, actually even a deeper understanding that terror will not be, uh, will not, should not be allowed to win. And if we uh, don't go in that direction, it is uh, will, it will win. I will conclude with, the, again, echoing what Iyad says. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, Palestinians, Israelis uh, are there to stay. This is their homelands. And uh, we need to look for a way right now. Yes, uh, an end to this conflict is not a possibility in the short term. But as we think about how to move forward, we have to keep that in mind. That how do you start putting the foundation for a process that will ultimately lead us to an end of this conflict? Well, I've done some reporting on this issue, uh, especially on what the United States is thinking in terms of a day after scenario for Gaza. And to put it in a nutshell, the Biden administration expects, um, is basically planning for an interim phase uh, after the heavy fighting ends. 
where uh, they think that an international force will likely try to stabilize the territory, followed by, over time, it being taken over by a reformed Palestinian authority. They like to use the word revitalized, but um, it's going to have to be way more than revitalized. But let's face it, none of this planning matters uh, if the Israelis uh, and the Palestinians are not on board. Um, Eyal, you're a former Israeli official who has plenty of insight into what's going on in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and beyond. What is the Israeli plan for the day after? Please give me some some scoops. Well, Nahal, you know, I mean, it will be difficult for me to uh, to answer this question directly uh, uh, because I think that the current government in Israel is not necessarily uh, uh, engaged meaningfully uh, in such a plan. Uh, um, uh, there are official visits in Israel this week, um, and, uh, and the American administration is, is demanding answers. And I, I was told and, and read in the in the news. Uh, last week that the Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu was formed a group led by high officials to talk about this and, and potentially uh, uh, plan something ahead. So, you know, I cannot speak on behalf of my government. I can speak on behalf of uh, what I think should be and hopefully in the near future will be uh, the right policies uh, governed uh, uh, by Israel because uh, uh, clearly um, uh, I think that unless there is also political transition uh, in Israel, where where extremists are not part of the decision-making process, it will be difficult uh, to move ahead. But even when I, having said all of that, uh, uh, the appetite among the Israeli public, I think across the board, including myself, uh, uh, to see the Palestinian Authority in a form similar to what we see today, uh, uh, taking Gaza and trying to, to change it, this will be a complete failure. Uh, there will be no support uh, for that in Israel, not because I don't think that we need to find a solution, and I clearly believe that only Gazans uh, uh, can rule Gazans, but the, uh, unfortunately, the Palestinian Authority has proven to be inefficient also to ruling the best West Bank, not only uh, ruling Gaza. Uh, and the fact that this is the case does not make me very optimistic about the potential of that uh, uh, happening. But I think that uh, there is an understanding in Israel across the board that there must be uh, a, a, a civilian governance in Gaza that is capable in holding that. What we also know is that in order to be in a discussion that we talk about the day after, we need to have passed the day before. And in the day before, Hamas should be removed completely from all of its authorities or responsibilities in Gaza because Hamas, I think, for the last uh, uh, 18 years, and I don't think that I'm the only one who thinks that, you may agree with me. I mean, Israel withdrew from Gaza 2005, handed so, it to the... right. So as long as Hamas is there, there is no future for Gaza. But once this has changed, I think that we can meaningfully start working on civilian, pragmatic governance, self-governance in Gaza. So look, I, we're going to talk about what 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 it means for the war to end, right? So that there is a day after. But I, let's say you're advising this government or and whoever is in charge. Maybe you are the government. I, I what what is like one or two things you absolutely feel must happen for the day after scenario to act, to take place? You, it can be something very technical. Just. The two important principles that we need to ensure in the day after. The first is that the security of the civilians in Israel must be restored. The security and the sense of security. This is crucial. I mean, you know, I'm, uh, cl clearly we'll be talking about the day after and talk about the Gazans and how we should uh, uh, restore uh, the strip that has been demolished as we look at it. There are about a quarter of a million Israelis displaced from their homes, both in the south and in the north, because of, of this a brutal invasion into their homes and their communities. Uh, uh, intending to, to slaughter them. So the first principle, and I can be detailed, we will need uh, uh, a different uh, uh, security apparatus 
and mechanism that would allow those people to come back to their homes. And the second thing in parallel to that is that we will need a completely different set of, of, uh, uh, of, of resources and of, of intentions of rebuilding Gaza for the Gazans themselves in a way that would create a future that will look very differently than what we had before. Uh, my hope is... What, what does that mean exactly? And well, what, my hope is that if about a security zone, you, uh, security for Israelis, are you talking about a buffer zone? Like, I'm just wondering if you get a little more specific. Yes, I mean, I mean, of course, we're talking about a, a buffer zone and a demilitarized buffer zone. Uh, uh, even when when Hamas is not in control of Gaza, there will be enough guns there that people could could use them to shoot uh, uh, through the uh, uh, the fence uh, in any point in time. Of course, we will need a buffer zone. We will need a completely uh, uh, um, reconstructed the Rafah crossing to ensure the trucks that come from Gaza do not possess all of the equipment that Hamas were able to infiltrate into Gaza and to build all of these, uh, you know, to smuggle in weapons and arms and explosives and all the things they needed for, for the rockets. And on the other side, we'll also need to make sure that the resources that come into the Strip go to the civilians of Gaza and not to Hamas. We will need to see that the concrete that is getting there and the cement that is getting there actually goes to rebuilding homes and houses rather than uh, uh, digging tunnels and 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 and, and uh, you know uh, uh, putting all those uh, concrete needed for them to 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 sustain. I mean, I've I've followed this. We see we've seen this, and I have to tell you, as Israelis, we we both wanted uh, uh, to ensure that Hamas does not use the resources from themselves because they are the enemy. But we also knew that as long as the Gazans live this way and oppressed by Hamas and the resources are deprived from them, this will erupt in a certain point in time, unfortunately erupted in the worst possible way. So these are the two principles. We will need to secure Israel and, and hopefully with the, with the trust of, of the countries around us uh, uh, that we're doing this without intention to occupy Gaza and of course not to, to resettle Gaza. Gaza needs to, to, to remain uh, the home of the Gazans, but also a meaningful restoration that is productive, that does not endanger the Israelis, and they start putting the research for the Gazans themselves so that they will have a future. So this is very helpful. And although I think we can acknowledge that there will be questions about exactly where that buffer zone will be located, but that's that's a different discussion. Um, Eighth, what is the Palestinian point of view on this? And, and I know that's, a, that's kind of a weird question to ask, because it's not like you represent all Palestinians or, or that AL represents all Israelis. I know that's that's difficult. But, you know, we've heard the Palestinian Authority leadership say they're not going to go into Gaza on the back of an Israeli tank. Uh, it's it's kind of a mess. But I mean, what, what's your sense of what Palestinians wish to see uh, in terms of a day after? I mean, maybe before I answer you, just maybe a couple of reaction to what Eyal said sure. uh, in terms of the Israelis. I mean, look, I mean, if I were advising the Israelis today, I would say first thing is do no harm. I see I feel today that the political statements coming from the Israeli government, from the prime minister, is foreclosing a lot of the possibilities, a lot of the avenues that we can have for the day after. Which when, statement is that? Can you I mean, uh, uh, for example, when uh, Bibi says, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, when he says uh, uh, no Palestinian authority, this basically makes it very hard for Arab countries that want to frame their uh, 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 role in Gaza as a transitional role ultimately for the Palestinians to rule themselves. When uh, the prime minister says, uh, never a two-state solution, this makes it impossible for some of the potential partners to come in. Uh, we saw yesterday the Emiratis, for example, uh, you know, pushed back on this one. 
So I would say for the Israelis, if I were to give them advice, I would say today be careful and be restrained with your statements because ultimately you don't want to close avenues. I understand the Israelis have their own politics, but their potential partners, Arab countries, also have their own politics and don't do anything and don't say anything today that will make it difficult for some of these Arab countries and some of the European countries to come in and play a role uh, the day after. Now, in terms of the Palestinians, uh, as you rightly said, it's a mess. It's a mess because uh, today it's very hard to uh, define who speaks for the Palestinians. Um, the Palestinian Authority continues to be the recognized international address, yet uh, I would just saw a poll actually this morning that says 92% of people in the West Bank want Abbas to resign today. Um, so, and a majority sees the PA as a liability. And so it's very hard to see if this is uh, the Palestinian Authority, if it can speak for the Palestinian public. Hamas uh, is very popular today, yet we see its popularity in Gaza actually dipping. So it's very hard to say uh, what, uh, what uh, they want. Today, basically, I, I would say that uh, for most of the Palestinians, uh, what they want today is for the fighting to end. And I think uh, this is a very clear point. When it comes to the day after, the Palestinians are split. Uh, the Palestinian Authority uh, itself doesn't uh, want, as, as you or at least as, as you said, I think, uh, that does not want to come on the back of Israeli uh, uh, tanks. But frankly, even if it wanted to, today it is simply not capable of doing it. It does not have the capability, the actual physical capability. When we see today the PA is incapable of uh, running, you know, Nablus in the West Bank, Jenin in the West Bank. Do you want to tour on Gaza, which is much more complicated? Uh, but more importantly, it lacks the political legitimacy to come in. Uh, again, in the same poll, most Gazans would reject the Palestinian Authority coming in. So if we want to see a capable Palestinian voice, we have to do some very, very serious reform in the Palestinian Authority. Not kind of, you know, uh, cosmetics, not only technical uh, reform, but deep political reform. And here I think we have to go and revisit what President George W. Bush was proposing and go something along uh, along these uh, these terms, uh, sidelining some of the corrupt uh, actors, empowering a strong uh, prime minister and revitalizing the political life in uh, within among the Palestinians, which has be really been atrophied under Abbas. Well, you know, these are good points, but one thing, I mean, reforming the Palestinian Authority or let's say like completely building a new Palestinian authority. And if you want to call it the Palestinian authority or a Gazan administration or whatever, let's just say you build a new structure or completely reform this one. There's a lot that's going to have to happen. It's worth its own book probably. But I want to know from both of you, and let's start with Eyal, what is one thing that should not be done as part of the reconstruction or the construction of a new Palestinian leadership? Let's start with you, Eyal, and then Raith. What's What should people not do, the mistake to avoid? Well, first of all, I think that the, the first mistake that uh, people might do, uh, being uh, careless and not in, in good enough understanding, is just to think that uh, uh, we can, uh, uh, you know, that the Palestinians should change from, from uh, the set of, of old guard leaders that are there today uh, with replacement uh, with a similar mindset just because they are known or have good relationship and ties uh, with the American administrations and, and, and others. This will be exactly the same. Uh, the, I think the main problem of the PA is that it does not serve the Palestinians. It serves uh, themselves. Uh, unfortunately, also true in Hamas, not because they are corrupt in that way, because they only care about the resistance and not for the people. So if the people, both in the West Bank and in Gaza, uh, uh, live under 
uh, uh, rulers and 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 uh, uh, establishments um, they do not care for them that is, is their interest is not aligned uh, with the needs of, of the people to promote prosperity and and, and better life then that is a problem uh, you know when our national security advisor and our government try to promote steps that would improve the economic situation in the West Bank for instance also in Gaza uh, uh, and the PA opposed it because they thought we were doing this to evade uh, a political solution where in fact we're trying to make good use of the time to promote the lives of the people so there will be less hostility so maybe later in the future we can reach reasonable agreements uh, and this was rejected and, and I have too many examples for that unfortunately this is I think a very important piece the second thing that is important uh, uh, is that while this transition is is done you know I don't expect the Palestinian Authority uh, uh, to be supportive of the Israeli narrative. This, I mean, they're, they're of course, stand to promote the, the narrative uh, uh, of the Palestinians and, and the needs and rights of the Palestinians. That's fine. But if a Palestinian authority does not engage in a meaningful way to reach a, a solution that is within the scope of understanding, even if it is a temporary solution later to be transitioned, uh, uh, if a new leadership will, will adopt resistance uh, um, uh, narratives and, and, and violence, this will never end. This will never end. And hopefully we can reach that. You know, I mean, I'm not sure. I cannot I cannot select who should be the leader of the Palestinian. Any name I will say will probably be problematic with them, so I'll keep my mouth shut, even though I have some ideas. But I, I think it's important. <laughs> we can do this some other time, Nahal. But I think this is important that once this is done, in an understanding, both from the Arab countries who understand the dangers of, of radical uh, uh, radicalization, and also by the foreign countries, especially the U.S., it is important that the construct, construct will be something that we can work with, so that we can reach a solution eventually. It, it seems like the there's very much a consensus on every side that the leadership is just terrible all around, and they all need to go. It's like that old saying: "Throw all the bums out," right? Um, but who do you replace them with? Like people you can't name because if you name them, they might be tarred. I mean, what are we going to have? Like our first artificial intelligence led authority? I, I don't know. Raith, I'm sorry. What, what is a, what is something that should not be done as part of the reformation or replacement or whatever of the Palestinian leadership? Hey, look, I mean, first of all, I think it's what should not be done is to say that we need a new leadership for Gaza. I think we need to have a more integrated uh, approach that understands you need to, to have a national Palestinian leadership, because both for political reasons, but also for actually practical reasons. So that's one. Uh, have an integrated approach that deals with both the West Bank and Gaza in terms of uh, joining the institutions. Two, and I hear I agree with, uh, with Eyal that it is not up to us to pick names, not only because it will discredit them, simply because it's just not, you know, it doesn't uh, work uh, that way. Uh, I believe what we need to do is to insist on having structural reform in the Palestinian Authority and allow leaders to emerge uh, through that process. To my mind, it was, I mean, you know, when uh, former reformist Prime Minister Salam Fayyad was Prime Minister, one thing that I found most fascinating in all of this, I mean, we all knew that Fayyad was a very capable individual. What, I, what was surprising to me is how many people, and I was a Palestinian official at that point, who, you know, I wouldn't kind of look at twice before that, suddenly started emerging and asserting themselves. There's plenty of talent there, push for reform and allow this talent uh, to emerge. So that's uh, uh, number two. Number three, do not ask a new uh, uh, leadership to do impossible things. Meaning, I mean, you know, I was talking to someone yesterday and they were saying, oh, the new Palestinian leadership should start by ending the pay for slave. 
policy. Uh, ain't gonna happen. It's a very politically difficult thing. So make sure that you do not ask the new leadership, which by, by its very nature will be shaky, will be trying to consolidate. Do not start by asking for impossible uh, things for heavy lifts. Let's start focusing on things that matter on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it is uh, clean governance, whether it is security, whether it's maintaining security coordination. Uh, sometimes, you know, we make the perfect the enemy of the good and let's be modest, realistic, but at the same time, tackling some, I think, of the important issues that, uh, that uh, re relate directly to the stability, whether in the West Bank or Gaza. So um, I, I understand what you're saying about politically difficult choices, especially early on. But I do want to make the point that being a leader requires making politically difficult choices. Otherwise, anybody could be a leader. So it, it's an important question to ask. But I, I think sequencing is a good point. Um, I want to ask a quick question about the interim force. There's, you know, all sorts of stuff floating out there. Turkish troops, American troops, um, some sort of Arab-led force. This is this is before we'd have like a PA or whatever-led ultimate authority. Um, and after the heavy fighting, I mean, this is kind of how it's being defined, if not if not very well. My sense, to be really honest, is it's just going to be Israel. Um, <laughs> I just want to know quickly, what do you guys think about that? Eyal, your turn. Well, you know, I think uh, uh, this is one of uh, uh, the most uh, complicated questions at this point, if not the most. Uh, and quite frankly, you know, I've, I've been I've been thinking about uh, day after strategy for several weeks now and been talking to many people and uh, 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 many factions. Uh, I think this is the the uh, the problem. Uh, that everybody recognizes, but uh, they don't have a solution. I, I don't think that uh, we could expect, uh, uh, you know, foreign countries uh, uh, to come and police uh, in Gaza. Uh, some of the, you know, I mean, the Americans will never do this, nor will Israel ask them to. Uh, and the Turks, Israel, will, you know, definitely don't want uh, a, a Turk armed men uh, uh, on our borders, uh, especially not after uh, the way Erdogan uh, uh, supported Hamas and called Israel to our organization, which, I mean, just mind-blowing to think that we were in the in the process of trying to normalize our relationship with Turkey, but, you know, that's for a different podcast, perhaps. Um, I think that, uh, ultimately, there could be an arrangement where the Arab countries in the region, uh, uh, you know, t take upon their, this, this role. I, I don't see this happening at the moment, and I don't see the process that is giving the right incentives and construct for that to happen. I mean, the negotiation uh, on the rules of engagement among themselves, you know, even before we, we understand that there could be uh, crossfires with Israelis because security will demand Israeli uh, presence there for this interim point in time, and everybody understands that. I think this will be very, very uh, uh, complicated. It calls for very delicate discussion between Israel and the other uh, countries. I want to say I hope it happens, but unfortunately, I'm not sure that it happens in this in this right way. And this, indeed, I think, uh, Nahal, you're touching on the most uh, a problematic pro uh, issue uh, at this hand regarding this. And then you reach a conclusion that there is no other choice. It's Israel. That's my worry. That if there is no other choice, it will be Israel. Uh, and the Gazans won't accept this. Of course, why would they? Uh, and Israel does not need to get back into this because truly we do not want to reoccupy Gaza. We shouldn't want to reoccupy Gaza. But if we start policing ourselves, that's as close as it can get. So I, I am uh, uh, worried about that option. Hopefully we'll reach a solution. 
And what I can say is that I think like other issues, because it's in none of, of the parties' interest that Israel will do this work. And again, provided that we're in the day after and Hamas is no longer there, I have a feeling that, you know, a solution will emerge, even if it's creative and we cannot see it right now. I would like to think that. Uh, but at this point, I, I don't have the blueprint of, of how this would happen. So one thing I'm hearing, and, and again, I really don't know enough about this, but I, I am hearing that there's um, some talk floating out there about something similar to the multinational force and observers in the Sinai that might be under consideration. I just want to throw that out there, but I am I want to stress also that I really, I, I don't know enough about it, but I think it's, you know, worth chasing, which means I probably should chase it further. Um, hopefully my editor is not watching. Uh, Dave, um, same question on the interim force. Like, yeah. you know, let's say you're in charge. What do you, what do, you do? Let's just put you in charge. Why don't we do that? <laughs> not a bad idea, Nahar. Not a bad idea. Um, look, I mean, uh, that idea aside, um, Look, I mean, just let me actually quickly just uh, to the last question. I mean, when I say difficult choices, look, I mean, I, I, I do believe that Palestinian uh, leadership should be clear on two things. Commitment to uh, uh, diplomatic uh, outcome about the two-state solution, meaning recognizing Israel, and the commitment to nonviolence and fighting terror. These are the basics. But what I, what I was trying to say is don't expect a new government to solve everything on day one, but rather let's prioritize. Look, I mean, here in terms of uh, the international force, I think Israel has to make some uh, uh, some trade-off and has to make its own uh, decisions. At the end of the day, no force will come if Israel continues to insist that it will have uh, <clears throat> indefinite security control over Gaza. No force will come and be seen either as collaborators with Israel uh, or as uh, it put itself in a situation where it will confront Israel. And I had this conversation with some Arab officials, and that's exactly what they said. They said, if you want us to play a role, even talk about playing a role, first of all, Israel had to get uh, put the right kind of uh, diplomatic framing. Again, two-state solution, transitional uh, period until we get the Palestinian Authority. And two, we have to have uh, security uh, control. This is almost impossible to imagine, because for the reasons that Eyal mentioned, Israel feels that it needs to take uh, security in its own uh, hand. So ultimately, Israel, I believe, will end up having to be in charge from a security point of view uh, for an interim period. However, things don't stop here because it's very hard for me as well to imagine Israel having security control and some other countries, Arab or uh, otherwise, to come and say, OK, Israel uh, does the security and we will come and deal with the civilian governance. So for Israel, as it thinks about how it moves uh, in this one, it has to understand that if it wants to continue having full security control, that by all probability, it will also uh, have to uh, uh, be in charge of some of the civilian aspects of running Gaza. And if it doesn't want to do that, then it really has to start thinking right now of what are the trade-offs. But I don't think that Israel uh, can you know, have its cake and eat it uh, uh, as well. Ultimately, there's prioritization and there are trade-offs. And if they don't, then you know we go back to the old saying, you break it, you own it. Uh, and this is, I think, the, tra the trajectory that we are headed towards. Um, so uh, we do not have an answer on this question. I did not expect one, but I thought it would be foolish not to ask it. Um, so I'm going to ask you uh, a question that I'm sure you'll easily be able to answer. Um, and Eyal, let's go with you because you brought it up earlier. When will we know that the war is over? Yeah, so, you know, uh, I think that's important because uh, uh, clearly it is it is. 
understandable and also recognized by the countries in the region that Hamas should stop ruling Gaza. But then comes the question, when do we know that they don't control Gaza, right? Um, um, especially because Israel will not pursue them till the last uh, terrorists uh, and the last gun. Um, I, I can tell you what are the necessary conditions and then maybe give uh, an idea on how we will know. Of course, the one of the necessary conditions is the leadership because this current leadership, unfortunately, is not willing to uh, uh, to negotiate any uh, real end of ceasefire because the demands that they're putting for a ceasefire are completely absurd. You know, to the point I think that Sinwar uh, would rather die as a shaheed than anything else uh, at this point. You know, he has done the, the, the most amount of damage that you could possibly imagine uh, uh, to, to Jews in Israel. And now I think all that is left for his legacy is... is is to die uh, uh, with with this ideological pride, unfortunately. Uh, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, um, if I'm wrong, then we will know because there will be attempts to negotiate the continuation of the release of hostages, but this isn't the case. So the leadership is one thing. Either they agree uh, uh, to, to, uh, uh, to meaningful terms of ceasefire, releasing all of the hostages, including the, the soldiers, all of them uh, uh, together to relinquish power because this is also something that the Arab countries around are saying. Uh, not only Israel and the United States. I don't see that happening, but you know this is this is point number one. Point number two has to do with the ability uh, to call the shots uh, uh, in Gaza, and for that I have you know uh, uh, an understanding of how things will happen. And Roy, I'd be happy to hear also your uh, 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 view on this. You know, was I was national security advisor, and we were negotiating the 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 terms of a ceasefire uh, in in Rise of Dawn. It was only with Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Hamas did not participate in that. And of course, the Egyptians played a crucial role. And I knew that, you know, when the Egyptian picked up the phone and, and, and they spoke on the other side, you know, either Sinwar or someone on, on their behalf, the Egyptian could tell them what they think, but Hamas told them what they will do. Uh, and that will be a change when the Egyptians call and someone picks up the phone on the other side and the Egyptians are capable of telling them, look, do you want to live or do you want to die? If you want to live, you better start doing as we say. Not because the Egyptians will kill them, because the situation will be in such a place. Egypt did not have this role, uh, uh, this leverage, uh, this ability to, uh, uh, to, to, to affect what's happening in Gaza, I think since Hamas took over, definitely deteriorated over time. Uh, and this will be an interesting matrix because I think the Egyptians know this. And I think that if we put the rhetoric aside, when President Sisi in his own tweet said that in his vision, Gaza Strip needs to be demilitarized, and he did not say that in English or in Hebrew. He said that in Arabic to his own people. Of course, he said that this needs to be married to a solution and the political solution. Yeah, fine. But he knows the danger of Hamas also for, for the national security of Egypt. So I think these are the kind of things we need to look for. Uh, uh, for Israel perspective, it won't be enough just to get the leaders. We will need to have all of the hostages back. Uh, and the sooner the later. This is the dilemma that the government is in, right? But they, they made this choice. They've done this truce for almost 10 days. Uh, uh, to get uh, uh, 86 of the hostages back. And, and this would have been extended if there was an option. So those are materials that uh, will play the role in saying that uh, we're close to end. Laitha, I want you to answer this question, but I do want to make very quickly the point that, as I reported in my story, Sisi's comments about the demilitarization element and some of the things he said have definitely been noticed by the Biden administration. That has made the rounds, and there is a sense that Egyptians are going to play a much bigger role than um, maybe a lot of people imagine, even even those who think it is going to play a big role. Um, go ahead, Keith, please. When, tell me when the war will be over. 
Um, before I tell you when the war will be over, I actually want to, since we're talking about Egypt, just maybe a few words here. And this is kind of maybe harkens back to previous question you asked, what not to do. Uh, I think it is essential that any ending of the fighting, we should give the uh, lead to Egypt and to countries that share our view, uh, our in the US in terms of how to end this. I think the worst thing that we can do is to give the lead in negotiating an end of the war to countries that support Hamas, be it Qatar, be it Turkey, because ultimately they will look for terms that will uh, help and support Hamas. We saw this in the 2014 war when the Qataris and the Turks tried to uh, uh, broker a ceasefire that would have been very advantageous to Hamas because these are countries that have an interest in Hamas uh, surviving and even strengthening. So give the lead to countries that we know share our objectives and Egypt, both because of its uh, you know political views, but also because of geography, would be the ideal country to do this. How do we know the war is over? I believe this war, I mean, first of all, I think we have to differentiate because we will at some point see a ceasefire. And it's very important to look at the terms of the ceasefire and ensure, and to me, when I read the terms of the ceasefire, that tells me uh, if, if the war is, uh, if Hamas won or not, because uh, you look at the terms, if Hamas finds itself capable of negotiating a ceasefire that even gives it an iota of an advantage, then we know that uh, the war did not end in the way that it was supposed to end. But keep in mind that this is a war that will not end when a ceasefire is going to be uh, uh, signed. Yes, the ceasefire will maybe signal the end of the kind of uh, major part of the operation, but given the nature of the objectives and given the nature, which is basically dismantling the capabilities of a very well-entrenched terror organization, I suspect that this is something that we will end up with a gray zone period, uh, which is not an active fight, but at the same time, not peace for a while. And this, to my mind, is the most complicated one. So we might have a formal ending to this war through, again, a UN resolution or a ceasefire or something. But I suspect that we will have a lower intensity period that will go on for months, if not years, after the uh, the major fighting is done. This is interesting because it sort of reminds me of Yemen um, a little bit. You know, they they negotiated ceasefires and then they kind of renewed them for a while, truces, whatever you want to call it. The word ceasefire is being poorly used in a lot of instances. And then they weren't able to renew the, the truce, but somehow it unofficially held for quite a long time. And so there's been calm, relative calm in Yemen. And so you're right. I mean, these gray zones do exist. It's not always, it doesn't always have to be something you you put on paper. Um, but let's say that we do reach the point of um, where we're, there's there's a sense that we can build an interim force or or we're even at the point where there's a new Palestinian governance structure being set up. Um, Ayal, what is Iran going to be doing during this? Hmm. So, you know, I mean, uh, I think Reitha, uh remembers we participated together in a, in an event in, in a, another think tank uh, here in Washington. Remember that a few weeks uh, uh, before uh, October 7. We were talking about the, uh, the prospect of the normalization process between Israel and Saudi Arabia, and many uh, uh, things were discussed. I took the time I had just to talk about the spoilers of the process. You know, I, I have my issues with what could happen, and I said there are two major spoilers to this process. Iran and Hamas. I did not envision October 7. I don't think I had an advance warning. You know, even I didn't imagine that this will be so bad. But I knew that, you know, 
even with the uh, 30 rockets, uh, Hamas could derail the process because a conflict will start and, and, and there we go. Iran continues to be the sole beneficiary of the chaos in the Middle East, more than anybody else. Raith is right about Qatar and I'm very angry at what they're doing and I think that we should be more uh, 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 serious about using sticks with them as well. Of course, Turkey, all of those countries that uh, have, have uh, 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 gave, gave room for the radical political Islam of ruling, I mean, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is bad for the region. This is bad for the Sunnis. But, you know, to, to the extent we can uh, agree or disagree about this, Iran and the use of proxies all throughout the Middle East, they've mastered this, unfortunately. You've mentioned Yemen before. You know, Yemen is... How did they get to a position where they can fire ballistic missiles and interdict, uh, uh, you know, uh, cruise vessels with helicopters? I mean, there's so few countries in the... Israel can do that. And I'm, I'm not sure that there are many other countries in the Middle East that can do that. The Houthis can do that. I mean, Iran is, is just using whatever they can in this. Clearly, they will want to derail this process. They will continue to be spoiling of this. And, you know, it's, you know we, we remember in the past, Iran tried their most and actually succeeded in derailing the processes in the past. They have been able to interdict every time. They made it clear what they were thinking. They used their authority. Uh, uh, of course, Hamas was the one that bombed the buses in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem in the in the 90s that you recall and took over Gaza after the disengagement and all of this. But Iran is always behind the scene and increasingly so. We will need to be mindful uh, uh, of that. We'll need to watch what's happening in the northern border with Hezbollah. And, uh, uh, and those issues will have an effect. Uh, and we'll need to be cognizant of spoilers and within our plan to have solutions for that. Otherwise, they will run back in and block the way. And before we turn to faith on this, I do just want to make the point that, you know, a spoiler is a spoiler if you allow them to be a spoiler. It, I know that sounds a little bit odd, but if every time they do something, it works and it spoils things and you can't make the decisions, the hard decisions on either side to press ahead, then the spoiler, the spoiler well, Michal, I mean, I, I I would want to agree with you, but we need to look at the facts. Uh, Fourteen hundred people slaughtered is quite a big spoiling, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, the number of buses that Hamas exploded in the '90s in the streets of Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and other places, you know, at the beginning, the prime minister at the time, the late Rabin, thought, well, you know, let's not let them spoil the process and continue. This ended up uh, uh, in a sequence of events that uh, eventually cost his own life. Um, oh, sorry, guys. <laughs> my editor is calling me. Um, I guess he is watching the show. Oh my gosh, maybe she's watching. Um, <laughs> but no, look, I, I take your point. I, I mean, you know, I, I would want to say that we need to be always, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, resilient uh, uh, to minor spoiling processes, but this is beyond imagination. I mean, what, what we've seen here, right, is off the charts. But I, I do want to agree with you. But we need to know, I think when Iran wants to spoil something, they don't play around. You know, they won't do something that is, if they do something and we don't respond, they will do something more because eventually they want to stop the process. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm not fond in, in letting those small problems uh, uh, become bigger before we, we, we address them. But I don't want to use this as an excuse. It's important for me to tell you and the audience about this. We will need. I mean, this will. We will need to be strong if we want to to have a better uh, a future in the region. It's true about Israel. It's true about the Palestinians. Definitely true about the countries around. 
And Faith, I'm going to let you talk about this while I send a note to my editor. Yep, here we go. <laughs> I mean, look, I, the only thing I have to go add uh, uh, to what Eyal said is that, uh, and, I, and I agree, Iran is a country that thrives on, uh, uh, on chaos and instability. This is how they project uh, power, and this is what makes them kind of structurally uh, a very problematic actor and one that one cannot do business with because they don't share the same paradigm, I think, that some of the other countries uh, share. I would only add, not only do they thrive on chaos, they try to create chaos. I mean, one thing that worries me as I look around the region during this uh, uh, period is to look at Iran actually trying to uh, destabilize a country like Jordan. And they are trying to destabilize it, both in terms of messaging, but also in uh, practical uh, terms, whether getting their uh, Iraqi militias uh, to uh, camp on the Jordanian-Iraqi borders, increasing the uh, weapon and drug smuggling from uh, Syria, also done by the Iranian proxies. So Iran is a country that uh, that will do everything to benefit uh, from this. How do you deal with this? I believe you have to deal with it in two ways. First of all, we do need to have a muscular uh, approach to uh, Iran. If Iran hits us or our allies, we have to respond. I mean, to my mind, uh, it is I, it, it baffles the mind that the Iranians and their proxies are attacking U.S. forces on an almost daily basis, I think a daily basis, uh, and our response has yet uh, been, uh, you know, it's sometimes we've responded, but uh, not certainly of the same magnitude that they're doing it. And as uh, E.R. rightly said, the Iranians, if they think they smell weakness, they will uh, push. So that's kind of one, uh, one element. We have to think in terms of how do you respond. But I think uh, maybe related to your question, uh, Nahal, earlier, in terms of, yes, we do know spoilers will spoil. The question is, how do you react to it? And I can tell you from my experience when I was a PA official, Hamas would attack Israel. That was in the late 90s, early 2000s. And the Israelis will uh, retaliate against the Palestinian Authority. Uh, this, uh, this kind of approach even actually makes it more attractive for any spoiler to come and say, look, I'm going to do the spoiling and uh, my opponent's going to get hit. So why not? So I think we have to think really more, uh, uh, more exhaustively in ways of uh, how do we make sure that the response to uh, spoilers is done in a certain way that does not weaken potential allies, but rather done in a way that actually directly hurts the spoilers, and not only the spoilers, but actually uh, their um, um, their backers. At the end of the day, you know, we've seen many instances in the past. Hamas will conduct a terror attack in the West Bank. Israel would not react against the Hamas leadership in uh, Gaza, would react in a very localized way. At the end of the day, this gave a message to the leadership of Hamas in Gaza and elsewhere that they can continue doing this, and frankly, uh, with very little cost to themselves or to their power base. Quick follow-up on this for Eyal. Um, are Israeli settlers a spoiler? You know, I, I think, of course, the, 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 the Solomon issue is, is, uh, uh, has always been uh, uh, in the center of everything that anyone that is talking about about this i'm uh you know if i think that the, the presence of the settlers at this point is not is not a spoiler in itself uh definitely when we understand that israel has withdrawn completely from gaza strip to the last house to the last grave to the last soldier and and this conflict has uh, uh become even more violent than it was uh, uh before with hamas with no settlements in the region and you know the, hamas will try to say that they're fighting also for the palestinians in the west bank I think we all know that this is not what they're actually trying to do. They will just continue to resist because it's not about our presence there. Uh, 
having said that, I am worried about uh, the the intensified violence in West Bank also by Israeli extremists, and I'm uh, and the fact that the IDF is responding uh, uh, more uh, vigorously on that, uh, understanding that this can can uh, uh, evolve into a, a deterioration, uh, an escalating situation. Uh, and doing more so in the recent weeks than in the beginning of the war. I think this is very, very important because Israel does recognize uh, um, uh, this issue. Of course, in this current Israeli government, it's more difficult to do some of the measures. Uh, um, uh, the, I mean, uh, uh, things were more in control in previous government and also in previous Netanyahu governments uh, uh, than they are right now. This is this is w- w- what there is. I, I think that in an Israeli context, the ability of a government to control the various factions is uh, is more serious uh, uh, than in other issues. I mean, we are uh, uh, even if sometimes we don't look like that. We're a serious country. We have authority. We have security establishment. We have the IDF. Uh, uh, we don't have groups, you know, doing what they want like, the way that uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad will do to Hamas, and Hamas will do to the PA, and everything will be blended in, in some way. I don't think it happened that way in uh, in Israel. But Israel does need to make sure that the radical factions. Unfortunately, some of them are violent, um, uh, are controlled and maintained, of course. And Prime Minister Netanyahu knows that. He also talked about this. Yes, um, he has talked about many things, your, your Prime Minister. Um, Faith, you, you should feel free to respond to that, but I actually I'm going to ask the next question and you can tackle both. Um, we could have our own leadership change in the United States uh, in the coming year. How do you see the U.S. approach to the conflict changing if Donald Trump or another Republican wins the White House in 2024? Um, let me first respond to the question about settlements. I mean, I oh, oh, that's the easier question. Okay, yes, go ahead. As I formulate <laughs> what I uh, want to say about the Republican. Uh, look, I mean, actually, I'd, I mean, I disagree with Ian, obviously, on this one. I disagree with Ian both in the sense that I believe that... Uh, the issue of uh, settlements is one of the issues that basically uh, help build a narrative among the Palestinians that there is no Israeli uh, partner. And this is not only a West Bank issue, this is a Palestinian issue. In the same way that terror, uh, and I'm not equating the two, but in the same way that terror builds a narrative in Israel, that the Palestinians are not serious about peace, I think settlements build that narrative. But that's for maybe for a future conversation. I do believe, though, that the issue of settler violence is one that is... uh, uh, that is a core issue. I mean, you know, uh, um, people talk about second front. I'm more worried about the West Bank than I'm, I would say, about uh, Lebanon uh, right now because of uh, of this. And here, I mean, we talked a lot about the uh, need to change the Palestinian leadership. I think we also need to start talking about what is the future in Israel because when you have a government, when you have members of a government who give political legitimacy to a lot of these uh, uh, violent uh, actors, um, and uh, yes, not all settlers are violent, but yet uh, there is a violent uh, fringe. And you have cabinet ministers, be it Ben-Gvir, Smotrich, and others, who basically are saying, eh, this is okay. Um, then we have a serious uh, uh, problem here. And I don't see how we can do business with a government like this. In terms of the U.S., look, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's an impossible question uh, to answer simply because we don't know what the next administration uh, uh, will do. All I can tell you is the following that without U.S. leadership, be it Republican or Democrat, it's very hard to imagine how any of these scenarios that we're talking about, Arab forces, international forces, day after, etc., can be done. At the end of the day, you know, we've been talking about uh, having the Arabs play a role. 
you know, intra-Arab relations are so fraught and so tense. And uh, I can't think of any two Arab countries that trust one another. And without having the U.S. providing the glue and the leadership uh, to build this kind of coalition, and without the U.S. showing that uh, we are willing in this country to also risk some of our own assets, as we ask some of our partners to risk their own assets, it's very hard for me to imagine how this kind of international coalition from the day after, whatever it's going to look like, can be built. So uh, if we end up with a next administration that takes an isolationist approach, Again, be it Democratic, be, be it Republicans, too early to, uh, to tell. I think none of these issues uh, that we're discussing will come to fruition and will end up with a model along uh, uh, piece. I think one thing that this administration has learned that, you know, what we've been doing and what the previous administration has been doing, which is basically disengaging from the Middle East, is very risky because at the end of the day, the Middle East will impose itself uh, on us. And it is, I'm sure... For an administration that wanted to focus on China and uh, and Russia, having the president and the secretary of state and others spend most of their time in recent weeks uh, being desk officers for Palestine Israel is a reminder that this is something that you can that we have to deal with and we have to lead on. It doesn't mean we have to overinvest, but we cannot ignore. Hey, y'all, please feel free to respond to the to the Trump Republican potential win question. But I, since we're getting a bit short of time, I also want to ask you if there's a question that you want to ask Ray. Um, and then Raith, I'll give you the same opportunity. So why don't you just tackle those together? Yeah. So I'll, I'll skip the question about American politics. Uh, as a foreigner, you know, I, I, should, I have things to say, but I guess I'd rather not. But I will use the opportunity. Thank you, uh, Nahal, for, for asking that. Raith, I want to ask you, you mentioned Jordan before. I want to ask you a little bit more about uh, the Jordanian uh, position and role in this. I mean, you said, of course, you talked about the Iranian interest in in, uh, uh, in breaking them from, from within. This has been the case for a long time. Israel, I think, played a crucial role in helping Jordan keep secure and intact throughout the decades. You know this, of course, very well. I think that from all of the countries around us, the only country that is having problems with condemning terror the way they should, unfortunately, is Jordan. And I, I'd, I'd be happy to hear your perspective on this. And we only have about five minutes left total. I just want to throw that in there. Go ahead. Uh, look, I mean, uh, Jordan, I think is, I mean, I have not been wor uh, this worried about Jordan since the 1980s. I think they are dealing with the most difficult uh, uh, set of challenges that we have seen. I mean, we saw, I think yesterday or the day before, I'm losing track of time, uh, there was a general strike in, uh, etc. in support not only of Gaza, but frankly of Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood is... Uh, feels emboldened, etc. And I feel that many in the Jordanian, at least the security establishment, are very, getting very uneasy about what is, uh, what is happening. So for Jordan, I think they are dealing with some serious uh, domestic uh, challenges. And I think it's important for us from the outside to recognize this and not to push them. Uh, you know, we should push them privately, maybe, but not to push them publicly uh, to do things that might... Uh, uh, endanger their own internal uh, stability. Um, I want to zoom out a bit and say, well, you're right, Eyal, I do think that under Bibi, and it's not only this government, even in previous Bibi governments, uh, Jordanian-Israeli relations have become uh, so uh, toxic. Um, it is very unfortunate that you have these relations, which I believe are key, not only for the Jordanians, by the way, also for the Israelis, be, uh, you know, just being uh, 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 maintained only by the security uh, uh, establishments. 
simply because there is zero trust on the political level between the king and the Bibi. The Jordanians believe that Bibi is there out is out there to get them. And I think unless we deal with this, we will find the situation where Jordan will not feel uh, uh, motivated to uh, uh, engage in a in a robust way with the Israelis. But for now, I would say with the Jordanians, just uh, this is not the time for posturing. This is the time to actually uh, uh, have a private conversation to understand their concerns and see where they can move and where they cannot move and take the lead from them. At this moment, this is a very crucial time for Jordan. And what's your question for Eyal? And we have about, you'll have about two minutes, Eyal. Go ahead. Uh, my question actually relates to uh, a point that I mentioned a bit earlier. I mean, do you see any way in which the current Israeli government is capable of engaging in some of these key points that are required, in my opinion, to get the Arabs and others uh, engaged? Can we see any way that this Israeli government can say, you know, yes, we want a unified Palestinian leadership to ultimately rule Gaza, and we want this to be part of ultimately reaching a two-state solution. Is this any way that this can happen, or are we? Do we have to wait for a day uh, for a day after not Gaza, but rather after Bibi and company? Look, I think that uh, uh, to be truthful, uh, the prospect of this government uh, uh, to resolve the uh, the strategic problem that uh, Israel is facing is is very slim. I mean, you know, I think uh, 2023 turns out to be one of the worst years in Israel's history, and that was true before October 7th, let alone after October 7th. Uh, and I, I won't dwell much uh, uh, into that and in, into our politics, but I think that the covered government in Israel is, is not capable in, in, in constructing uh, something meaningful to the future, but I do want to say that I think that also in a in a new government in Israel, uh, some of the things that have been said uh, uh, will be difficult to implement. I think it is important to use this time to say that the sentiment in the Israeli street, in general, uh, uh, we've moved back a lot in the in the trust that Israelis can give in neighbors. Uh, I wouldn't say that you know overwhelmingly on the Arabs, but specifically. On the conflict with the Palestinians, specifically with the Gazans, you know, I've, I've, we're family of the family uh, of my family living in in, in Kfar Aza, uh, uh, and they're displaced from their homes. Just, just to think on what it will take for them to come back and and what that means. We're way beyond talking about uh, the point of governance. What I, I do understand is that a new government will need and will also hopefully will be able. Uh, uh, to talk in terms of a political horizon so that we can have something going on and something starting, hopefully, eventually, it can le will lead to that point. This government is not capable of doing this. A new government will hopefully will. And we will need this because we will need a new framework for the Middle East, that's for sure. And Eyal, just to be clear, when you say the current Israeli government, you're talking about the elected government. You're not talking about the war cabinet. No, no, no. I'm talking about the elected government. The war gotcha. cabinet, gotcha. you know, Israel does not have a unity government. Netanyahu refused to build a unity government. If he didn't refuse, this wouldn't have been the government. We have a war cabinet. I'm very happy to its performance. I think that the two uh, uh, very serious people, Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot, are doing a crucial role. The fact that Benny Gantz lost his son during this war says a lot about the way that this has been playing out. No, no, I was talking about the government of, of Israel, the elected government of Israel. Yes. It's certainly, it's certainly, um, definitely. Listen, we're, we're almost out of time. I do just want to make one point before we go, because this was really wonderful. I have so many other questions, but, you know, I'm not sure I like the term political horizon. Um, a horizon is something you can never really reach. I understand the idea of hope and, and it's something to shoot for, but horizon, I don't know. Thanks, everybody. I really, really appreciate this. This was a really great conversation. Let's do it again sometime. Well, well, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much.